Now, if you have your Bible, open to Genesis chapter 31. We're going to continue with the next episode of Jacob's experience, his life, God's faithfulness to him. How many are excited that God is faithful? Aren't you glad that God has not not lost sight of you? He knows where he has you. Even in the midst of the most difficult circumstance, that God has a purpose for you in the midst of that, and that circumstance is going to be used, among other things, to refine you, to strengthen you, and to indeed bless your life and bless others. This is Jacob's situation. We last left off, and we saw that Jacob had prospered greatly, how God had opened the door for him and had done a great miracle. God said, it's because of your faithfulness and what I have seen Laban do to you that I prospered you. God is fulfilling his promise. If you remember uh, when Jacob had left home, he was forced to leave home, his mother Rebekah, because of their deception of their father, his father and his brother Esau, that now his life was under threat. Rebekah said, you better flee, you better leave. Uh, because your brother Esau wants to kill you. And so he leaves basically with nothing. She says, go to my family up in Haran. Maybe there you'll find a wife. But more than that, you'll save your life. So on his way to Haran, he stops at a place called Bethel. Remember, a certain place. And it was there that God met him, and there that God appeared to him, and there that God had promised him that he would take care of him, he would watch over him wherever he would go, that he would provide for him, and that he would bring him home. And now Jacob had gone from there with those promises, had been received by Laban, his uncle, but also had been used by Laban. And now we're at the the point where Jacob is going to return home, where God is going to release him to come home. He's been with Uncle Laban for 20 years the last six of which God has indeed blessed him. This is where we pick up the account. He has prospered marvelously. He's been blessed exceedingly. He is indeed a wealthy man by the standards of those days, all because of God's blessing in his life. Now remember, the blessing comes because of whose purpose? It's God's purpose. God has a purpose for Jacob. He has a purpose for you and I. And sometimes when things don't happen the way you or I want them to happen, or in the time that we, you and I, want them to happen, it's very easy, very tempting to get mad at God, to throw a little temper tantrum, a little fit, sit in the corner, suck our thumb, have a pity party, right? Rather than saying, Lord, you know what you're doing. I've gotten myself into this mess. But Lord, not without you in your provision, in your protection, and you are going to bring me through this. Had Jacob gotten himself into a mess? Absolutely. But God is faithful. Aren't you glad that God is faithful to your life even when you're faithless? So important. So important. So just read with me. We're going to read the chapter And then I'm just going to spend a little time unpacking it for you. There's some things here that you don't quite get when you read the chapter, and so they require some commenting on. 
Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So things are changing. And then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have worked for your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And then Rachel and Leah replied, Do we still have any share in the inheritance of our father's estate? Does he not regard us as foreigners? Not only has he sold us, but he has used up what he paid for us, what was paid for us. Surely all the wealth that God took away from our father belongs to us and our children, so do whatever God has told you. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all of his livestock ahead of him, along with the goods he had accumulated in Padanaram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all he had and crossed the river, and he headed for the hill country of Gilead. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days, caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. And then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to, do any, not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. Laban and his relatives camped there too. And then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me? So I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps. You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night the God of your father said to me, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you long to return to your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid. I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, he shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent 
into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two maidservants, but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I am indisposed. So he searched but could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. What what sin have I committed that you hunt me down? Now that you have searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and, and let them judge between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, and the cold at night, and sleep fled my eyes. It was like this for 20 years, as I worked in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Well, Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters, the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha and Jacob called it Galid. Very simply means witness heap. Laban said, this is a heap. This heap is a witness between you and me today. This is why it's called Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban also said to Jacob, here here is this heap and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them, and he left and returned home. That's a fascinating account of this section of Jacob's life and experience, and I want to talk to you about it because on the surface of it, it seems to end fairly well. But I want you to understand a little bit more about Laban and how Jacob responds to him because there are significant lessons there for us as believers 
We're told in the first three verses that Jacob again had become exceedingly prosperous by God's blessing. And this stirred up amongst Laban and his sons a certain envy, a certain jealousy. They were angry at him. Jacob's flocks were prospering. And while Jacob's flocks were prospering, Laban's flocks were suffering. And so they began to compare. You know what comparing does. Comparing always opens the door for what? Envy and jealousy. So we look at somebody else's life and how they may be prospering. And and if we're not prospering, we can get very envious and very jealous of them. That's unbecoming to us. But this is exactly what happens. And it's going to lead to even more grief, as we shall see. There's a way in which you and I can guard against this, is when someone else is prospering, we should rejoice with them, should we not? So when your neighbor and your brother-in-law and all those people in your life who don't deserve prospering like you do, when they're prospering and they're rejoicing, what should we do? We say to them, oh, I'm so happy for you. No, we rejoice with them. Why? Because it guards us from being envious and jealous of them. It guards us against a root of bitterness growing up in us. How critically important it is to see the tendency so easily for us in Laban and his sons to be jealous. Laban's sons, no doubt, saw that their inheritance was slipping away. And they accused Jacob of wrongfully appropriating their father's wealth. Now before, Jacob had worked 14 years for Laban and that had been a source of great prosperity to Laban. Laban's own testimony earlier in the chapter. But now things, these last six years, things are going very differently. And Jacob realized that he could not stay much longer in Haran. But he had made a bargain. He had given his word. He had agreed to stay and work for Laban. And Jacob would not be the first one to break his word or to break the covenant. He would wait either for God to release him or he would wait for Laban to break the covenant. But Jacob would not take matters into his own hands. How easy it is for us when things are not going well, when, things, when we're not experiencing well-being for us to quit, us to give up when things go against us when they don't work out the way we thought. Our first tendency is to say, well, I guess God doesn't want me here. No, no, no. If you're getting squeezed, stay there. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but God told me to leave. How do you know God told you to leave? When God wants you to leave, you'll get confirmation from other people, too. Don't lean on your own understanding. And so he's got to leave, but he's not going to take it on, he's not going to leave on his own initiative. And he no doubt suspected that Laban did not intend ever to ultimately honor his bargain or he probably, Laban probably certainly wouldn't let him leave with his flocks, much less his daughters and his children. Rather, Laban would probably take them away from him by force. So God comes to Jacob in a dream and he says to him, it's time to leave Laban It's time to return home. This is so instructive. Wait patiently for the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. 
Far too many people and far too many Christians quit in the middle of a difficult situation. They quit too soon. They give up too soon. Marriages, ministry, churches, and you go on and on and on. Rather than hang tough, God is working in you and he's going to work through you. Now, it's very possible. He calls Rachel and Leah out to the field. It's very possible that his wives do not have a full grasp of the whole situation, as does Jacob. I don't know many wives that have a full understanding of everything that's going on with their husband. Do you? My wife's always asking me, what happened today? I said, I could tell you, but then I would have to kill you. (laughs) So he's going to make a move. In his mind, probably his wives don't have a full understanding of all that's going on in the whole situation, nor would they may, they may not want to actually leave Heron. So he calls them out into the field where he's, past, where he's taking care of the flocks so he can speak to them alone, away from all of the rest of the family, all their brothers, all the servants, who, if they overheard these conversations, would certainly take it back to Laban. It's critical that Jacob keep it quiet. So he told them that their father's attitude toward him had changed. No doubt they had noticed that. He recounted to them the number of instances, ten, in which their father had changed the deal, changed his wages, and for no apparent reason except to keep him from increasing in wealth. He says that when Laban saw that the flocks were producing speckled young, he would change it to spotted or striped. And then when the flocks produced the spotted or striped, he would change it again to speckled. Ten times he did this. In every case, however, the Lord kept blessing Jacob. No matter what Laban tried to do him, God protected him and God prospered him because God had a purpose for him. And God's will will be done. Isn't that exciting? You can always know when you're smack in the middle of God's will, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter what the circumstances are against you, no matter how unfair things are, that does not inhibit God's power. God is much greater than our circumstances. He's much greater than the opposition against our life. He's going to use it for our good and for his purpose. God's power is not limited by a lack of fair play. How many know this is not a fair world? Yeah, every day. That's not fair. And when we say that's not fair, the tendency is to throw our hands up and give up rather than say, Lord, you know all about this. I'm not here incidentally. I'm not here coincidentally. I'm here because you have me here in a purpose. You're teaching me something. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to trust in you. Just because things aren't fair doesn't mean that God's power doesn't come to bear in that process. God provided for Jacob, took care of Jacob. Even though Laban had changed his wages ten times, God continued to bless him in spite of Laban. In spite of Laban's not playing fair. I had a conversation with a woman last night whose boss is not fair. She said, this was a timely message. I was just getting ready to quit. I said, well, probably no one would blame you for quitting if the situation is really intolerable. 
But what would happen if you hung in there? What would happen if you really looked to the Lord? What would happen if you start praying for your boss? Oh. And during all this time, during all this time, Jacob had continued to serve Laban to the best of his ability. He says to his wives, he says, you know how I've served your father with all my strength. He doesn't hold back. He kept his word. He gave a good testimony. Laban, for 20 years, watched Jacob and Jacob's testimony about God. Now, Jacob knew that Rachel and Leah were aware of many of these things. He says, you know how your father has treated me. You know these things. You know how I have worked hard. They had to be impressed. They had to be impressed with the way that God kept miraculously prospering their husband despite the fact that their father did everything he could to prevent that prospering. And Jacob gave all the credit. We're told in verse 9, he gave all the credit to whom? He gave it to the Lord. He doesn't say, look what I have done, look what I've done. He says, no, the Lord has done this. The Lord has blessed. And Jacob explained to them how God had revealed to him in a dream all that had happened. How God had really controlled all the animals and allowed only those that would produce the off-colored offspring to mate and reproduce. And how God had revealed also to Jacob that, that he knew how Laban had mistreated him. And God reminded Jacob of Bethel. Twenty years earlier, I'm the God of Bethel. Remember Jacob? Twenty years ago? When you came to that certain place and I promised you that I would be with you, I would watch over you wherever you go, and I would bring you home. I'm the God of Bethel. I've kept my word to you, Jacob. I've prospered you. I've blessed you. I've watched over you. I have protected you. And Jacob, you remember you set up the pillar and you, and you made a vow. You anointed the pillar with oil. You made a vow 20 years ago. And that vow and that pillar that Jacob had set up, they were really a commemoration of God's promise to him. They were an earnest. They were a signal, a response to his promise. That as God would do this, watch over him wherever he would go, bring him back home, protect him, provide for him. Jacob would remember this. And now the time had come, and God told him to leave at once. And go home. Now God had certainly taken care of Jacob. God had certainly prospered him. Despite the many, many obstacles that he faced, just as he had promised. God has promised to provide and take care of us, has he not? The good work that he's begun, he will bring to completion. As we trust in him, he will meet all of our needs. Don't be anxious for anything. Your Father knows what you need. Just seek Him first, His kingdom. And all these other things will be taken care of. Now in verses 14 through 16, as Jacob has recounted all of these 20 years of history to his wives in preparation for saying, we're going, they respond. And they say, you know what? We support you. 
they respond to him with wholehearted support. Wholehearted support. They acknowledge the fact that they've come to, come to grips with the fact that their father doesn't really show concern about their future. The fact that he had spent their inheritance. He treated them essentially as foreigners, not even as daughters, by selling them. And even the exorbitant price which Jacob had paid for them, 14 years of free labor for Laban, could only make them love and appreciate Jacob more and really despise their father. Any woman who who would have a man who would do that for her would just have to be in love with that guy, value him. And rather than treating that 14 years of free labor, the payment of that as a dowry to provide a financial base for his daughter's future well-being and security, Laban used up the proceeds of all those 14 years of labor on himself. And so they felt entirely justified. Entirely justified in interpreting God's dealings with their father Laban in causing his flocks gradually to become Jacob's flocks. They interpreted it as simply taking what had rightly belonged to them and their children and restoring it, God restoring it to them. And though they rationalized this and their rationalization was not highly spiritual, they do acknowledge very clearly that God had blessed Jacob. And because of that, they have absolute confidence that whatever God told Jacob to do, this was what should be done. And they indeed were ready to go. They say, let's go. Do what God has told you to do. But as they recount their history and their experience, it makes sense and it's easy for them to agree. Now, verses 17 and 18, Jacob uh, wastes no time. Laban is away shearing the sheep. This is a very arduous thing with all of his sons. And it's a good time to make his break, to leave before anyone knows what's happening. So he gathers up his family, his flocks, all of his goods, and he heads for home. He makes his break from Laban. Now, verse 19 mentions a very minor but very serious, potentially serious matter. What, what is that issue in verse 19? It's almost like, a, like, a, like an aside and almost an afterthought. Oh, yes, and Rachel, while Laban was out shearing the flock, Rachel stole her father's gods. How do you steal a god? Yeah, they're little statues, little idols. They were used for divination. Do you remember in the last time, in the, in the earlier chapter, where Laban had acknowledged that he had learned through divination that the Lord had showed him that, that he was blessed because of Jacob? So these idols were, were, were used for divination. They were superstitions. Uh, they were no doubt... Uh, supposed to bring good fortune to the family. So these were very, very important. And you know superstitious people. How many know superstitious people? Many of us have been superstitious, haven't we? You know, you watch baseball players. These guys are the most superstitious people in the world. You know, they got to do this all in the right order. They don't step on the baseline. 
I mean, they're all crazy kind of things because what? It's all good luck if they, if they get one thing out of order. Oh, man, all their biorhythms are off. Isn't that true? So you can understand something of what, what these idols meant to Laban and to his family, certainly to his sons, because they were passed on to the sons as part of the family inheritance. I told you last week that I believe that, that, that Leah, not Rachel, Leah was God's choice for Jacob. Do you recall that? This is one of the reasons. Because although Rachel knows of and may profess a belief in the God of Jacob, she still holds on to her gods. She's not fully invested here. And the probably the taking of this gods for her would meant some protection, some measure of help along the way as they left. And again, it just speaks to us about, about you come into the kingdom of God, we always bring baggage with us, don't we? You always bring baggage with you from the world, from your old habits. But the Bible says we're new creations, we're new creatures. The old things have passed away. Leave off those old things. See that they really are valueless. But we want to hold on to stuff because it's comfortable, it's easy, it's safe, it's, it's known. It provides some measure of personal security rather than saying, you know what, Lord, you're going to be my security. I'm going to step out here and I'm going to learn how to walk in faith. I'm going to learn how to trust you and not lean on these kinds of things. So again, we learn here from Rachel. Now Jacob leaves. He leaves before Laban knows anything of his plans. He has a three-day head start. But when Laban hears that Jacob has departed, he apparently was furious, and he intends to do something drastic. He is going to chase down Jacob. Doesn't just say, well, okay, he's left, okay, you know, Lord bless him. No, he's going to chase him down. By the time he left the work of the shearing of the sheep, because he couldn't leave in the middle of that, that, has to, that work has to be done. It would take him about seven days to catch up now to Jacob. But as he catches up on the night before he actually meets Jacob, when he camps in Gilead, God speaks to him in a dream. And God warns him against harming Jacob in any way. He was not even to speak to Jacob if his intent was to try to talk him into coming back or in any way to rebuke him. He was not to say anything good or bad. You, if you're going to go, if you're going to be, you, you just be very, very careful what you say to Jacob. He's under my protection. He's under my care. So the next day, Laban goes out to meet Jacob. And when he meets Jacob, he immediately launches into the most hypocritical speech of phony concern over Jacob's deception. And listen to what he says. He says, you have taken my daughters like the spoils of war without giving me a chance to even kiss them goodbye. Is he really concerned about that? He says, and you've deprived me of the opportunity of sending you off with a party. <laughs> Gag. All the people, all the people, both who had, 
who'd come with Laban and all those, his family with Jacob, hearing all that Laban has to say, they know that he is just absolutely full of it. He's not telling the truth. Laban has only one thing on his mind, but he cannot say what it really is in view of God's warning. He is stuck. So he has to justify himself for chasing down Jacob. And how does he justify himself? By asking why Jacob stole his gods. Now think for a minute with me on this, please. Was this the real reason Laban chased Jacob? No. Laban wants those daughters and he wants those flocks. Why? Because they're the key to controlling Jacob, so he thinks. He wants Jacob back. And if he can take the wives and take them back by force, as Jacob feared he would do, or if he can take the flocks back by force, Jacob would have nothing. He could control Jacob. So he says, why did you take my gods? Now Laban, Laban has observed Jacob for how many years now? 20 years. Do you think that Laban, after 20 years, do you think that Laban would know that Jacob would would have nothing to do with his gods or idols? Hello. But before he answered Laban's charge of theft, Jacob is going to set the record straight. Even though Laban and everyone else present probably knew that Laban never would have let Jacob take his family, much less his flocks. And as far as Laban's gods were concerned, Jacob protests his innocence. And he tells Laban, he says, search through my tents. Search through all my belongings. Search through all my goods. Search through everything that I have. Was he confident that Laban would find nothing? Absolutely confident. Little did he know, however, that Rachel had indeed stolen the gods. So can you see Jacob caught right here? He's saying, search. Look through everything. And so Laban does. No one's aware that Rachel is the real culprit here. Laban begins this ransacking through the, all of Jacob's goods, all the, all the tents, all of his encampment, rushing from tent to tent, but he finds absolutely what? Nothing. He finds absolutely nothing. All the while, I mean, you have to see this, you have to picture this, all the while, here's Rachel inside of her tent, sitting on her camel saddle with the gods underneath it. Ice cool. Ice cool. Apologizing to her father that she cannot rise up to greet him. I wonder if Laban possibly had the slightest suspicion that Rachel may be up to something here. It's ironic, I think, and and quite humorous, Here is Laban. You have to see this picture of Laban frantically searching through all of Jacob's goods, through all of his tents, 
and he cannot find his gods. He cannot find his gods. He doesn't even hear, we're under here. Look under here. We're helpless. We've been hidden. Rescue us. Laban has come to rescue his gods. His gods cannot be found. (laughs) And yet, and yet, Jacob's God found Laban and warned him not to harm Jacob. You see the humor in that? Subtle, isn't it? He's searching and searching and searching. He can't find his gods. His gods are nowhere to be found. And yet, Jacob's God finds him. Would you go, hmm, maybe I need to reevaluate some things here. What would have happened, do you suppose? What would have happened if Rachel had been found out? We can only wonder. We can only wonder. By what she may have considered a, at the time, only a little sin, this had indeed placed her husband, her father, and herself in a very difficult position. God had apparently protected them. God had apparently protected her. Why? Well, knowing that Jacob himself was innocent, and knowing also that the discovery would have fallen hardest on who? Jacob, that's right. It would have fallen the hardest on Jacob. Why? Because it wouldn't, it wouldn't have mattered to Laban. Laban could care less about his daughters already. Jacob loved her. He'd spent 14 years to get her. It would fall hardest on him. Again, God's grace to Jacob. Amazing. Amazing grace, isn't it? Now, verse 36, you'll see Jacob still completely unsuspecting of Rachel. Now he loses his temper. He gets angry with Laban. And he begins to protest Laban's attitudes and Laban's actions, which he had suffered in silence for 20 years. This is the first time Jacob apparently speaks up to Laban. He challenged Laban to put forth his charges of theft before the whole assemblage. And then he went on to remind Laban of his 20 years of faithful service. Read again with me verse 38. He says, I have been with you for 20 years now. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. 
But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. So he reminds Laban of his own faithful service for 20 years, his industry, his commitment, the fact that very really he made it a habit to do more than was ever expected of him. That really is the way of a faithful shepherd, isn't it? To do more than is expected of you. Jesus, Jesus describes himself in John's Gospel, chapter 10, he describes himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd who lays his life down for his flock. He does not, he's not like the hireling who when the, when the wild beasts come and attack the flock, who the hireling flees. No, the good shepherd stays with the flock and defends the flock, will lay his life down for the flock. David, the shepherd king. David says as a shepherd, the shepherd's prayer, the 23rd Psalm, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. The Apostle Paul, speaking as a shepherd of the flock, a shepherd of God's church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let me read to you, how he recounts this very same principle, echoing Jacob's sentiments. Verse 26, he says, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily concern. I face the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's the heart of a shepherd. That's the heart of one who, who is going to go above and beyond what's expected of him, beyond just the call of duty. This is Jacob. Jacob tells Laban, I've, I've done more than was ever expected. I'll often tell people as, as, as uh, they serve in the church, and I know this, I'll say, thank you for all that you do that I know about, but thank you for all that you do that I don't know about. Because there's so many things happening in people's lives and through people's lives. I raised my son to be a man who would do more than is expected of him. I was raised that way. Do more than is expected of you. Don't just do the bare minimum. Don't just do what, what you can get by with. Do more than that. Do more than that. I think it's shameful when I hear people professing Christians say, well, I, I, all I, want, I just want to make sure I just get into heaven. No, you ought to want to, you ought to, want to go into heaven with a burst of glory. And then as you enter those gates of heaven, that, that applause goes up, and you hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Not just the minimum. Far too, many, far too many young people today are being taught by the world, by their peer group, even by their parents who are not in their lives, moving them, urging them on, disciplining them, training them, do more than is expected of you. 
Don't just settle for the lowest common denominator. In marriages, husbands, do more than is expected of you. Wives, do more than is expected of you. Like Jacob. Beloved, if we do that, there are some effects, some results in our life. Did you know that? Let me share these with you real quickly. If we follow Jacob's example, if we follow Jesus' example, if we follow Paul's example, if we are people who are willing to do more than is expected of us, first of all, it pleases God. It pleases God. Secondly, we earn recognition and advancement. People will recognize, they'll see. I've told my son, I said, people are going to watch your life. And they're going to recognize that you're a quality young man. And you'll be advanced. You'll rise up out of the crowd. It's like the cream rises to the top. Not only will you be pleasing God, but you'll be recognized and you'll be advanced. Thirdly, your reputation will be enhanced. The fact that you do more than is expected of you speaks of your of who you are, what you're all about. You can depend upon this person. They're there. They'll go the extra mile. They'll do whatever it takes. They'll go beyond. What a reputation to have, huh? Fourthly, it'll build others' confidence in you. We look around today, and, and who are our heroes? Who are the heroes for our young people? Tragic. Tragic. And for our Christian young people, we want them to look up to their, to their parents. We want them to look up to the leaders in the church, people who are doing more than is expected of them, people who are going beyond the base minimum. So they have confidence. Fifthly, doing more than is expected of you gives you more experience and knowledge. It gives you more experience and knowledge. You expand. You, you grow. You mature in ways you never would unless you put yourself in a place where you had to go beyond what was just simply expected of you. And lastly, you develop spiritual maturity. You have to grow spiritually because it requires that you give yourself away. It requires that you be a sacrificial person. It develops your spiritual maturity. So we can learn some significant things from Jacob's example and his testimony. So when Jacob is done with his Testimony to Laban, verse 43, Laban now has the opportunity to reply. And in his reply, he can say nothing at all. He can say nothing at all by way of denial of his claims or his charges. He's stuck. And so what does he do? Like most of us, when we are not going to, we won't pull back, we won't repent, we won't apologize, we won't say I was wrong. He changes the subject. He changes the subject. And how does he do that? Well, he, he points to his daughters. He points to his grandchildren. He points to the flocks. 
Listen to what he says. Jacob, how could you possibly suppose that I would do anything to hurt my daughters or my grandchildren? And furthermore, all of your flocks have come from my flocks. So why aren't you grateful that I've made a way for you to acquire them? You see what he does? Though he knew he was wrong, and don't we know when we're wrong? But you, it, it, when you've got to gag, uh, gag down a piece of humble pie, don't you, to acknowledge when you're wrong? He's not about to do this. Though he knew he was wrong, a self-seeking hypocrite, a self-seeking hypocrite such as Laban cannot bring himself to repent He can't bring himself to make public acknowledgement of his own guilt. But he must, by whatever means possible, shift the blame away from himself. So he blames Jacob. He's going to shift the blame away from himself. Away from his own guilt, his own culpability, to whatever real or imagined grievances he can find in others, i.e. Jacob at this point. So what does he do? Verse 44, he proposes a covenant. Now you have to see his subtlety here. On the surface of it, oh, he proposes a covenant. Well, this is a nice thing. No, it's not. It's part of his strategy for shifting the blame from himself to Jacob. He proposes a covenant between himself and Jacob. Now, notice something. As soon as he proposes the covenant, Jacob is going to agree, and Jacob will set up a pillar to commemorate the covenant. And he'll tell his kinsmen, he'll tell his his sons to gather up stones and pile up a, what, witness heap. So he's amenable to this covenant. Laban then... Before Jacob can say or do anything else, Laban takes the initiative in proposing the terms of the covenant. Now look at the terms. Let's examine the terms of the covenant. The terms of the covenant will imply that Jacob is the one not to be trusted. They will imply that Jacob has to be watched. That Jacob needs certain restrictions placed on him. Nothing on Laban. What are the restrictions? First of all, Jacob must not mistreat Laban's daughters. Hello? How long has Jacob been married to these two women? 20 years. We have no record of his mistreating them. He had always treated them with kindness and consideration. They trusted him far more than they trusted their own father. And yet he says to them, he says, this witness heap is going to be a witness, and I'm going to set the terms, you must not mistreat my daughters. He's never mistreated them. He wasn't to take any other wives other than Laban's daughters as wives. Laban, have you forgotten something? Have you forgotten 
that Jacob only wanted Rachel in the first place? It was because of your deceptive tactics that now he's in this bigamous situation? And finally, Laban would say that after Jacob goes back to Canaan and indeed continues to become strong and wealthy under God's blessing as he inevitably would, Jacob must not come back to Haran bent on revenge against Laban. Wait a minute. Laban had to know that Jacob was not a vindictive man, would never think of such a thing. He's not like Laban. And in return, notice this. In return, Laban would promise not to come any further into Canaan to hurt Jacob. Now, isn't that magnanimous of him? Isn't that great of him? Now, he no doubt, if he could, would in fact pursue Jacob to do him harm, but who would not allow it? God would not allow it. He knows that, so he might as well appear noble by promising this restraint. Do you see how sneaky Laban is? And how on the surface of it, it appears that he can be very gracious about this covenant deal. But he's not taking any responsibility. He's turning it all back on Jacob. And then Laban, notice this. Then Laban called that heap of stones something else. What else did he call it? Mizpah, meaning watchtower. Watchtower. Meaning, it, it, this, this heap of stones now is given a, another definition, if you will. It's a sort of sentry guarding the, between Laban's world and Jacob's world. And Laban even invoked the name of Jacob's God in verse 49. Now, why does he do this? Why does he call this heap of stones, which is a witness heap, why does he call it a watchtower now? Well, again, verse 50, he implies that guess who needed watching? Jacob. He implies that Jacob needs watching, and it is the Lord's responsibility to watch him. May the Lord watch between you and me. This is so subtle. This is so subtle. Laban's God would not need to do anything. There's no mention here of Laban's God. Laban's God would not need to do anything since Laban was a man of his word. In verse 51, Laban even takes credit. Notice this, verse 51. Laban even takes credit for the heap of stones though it had been done at Jacob's initiative and by his labor. I set these stones up. I'm telling you, Laban's hypocrisy and his self-righteous sanctimonious would be almost unbelievable were it not so typical of so many people who profess to be Christians today. Do you know that? There are so many people in the church who act like Laban. 
Beloved, that ought not to be. That ought not to be. Would you agree? Religious moralists, self-righteous religious moralists. And I think it's strange. I think it's interesting, fascinating, that Laban's hypocritical and suspicious statement in verse 49 has been so often appropriated by so many today as the so-called Mizpah blessing or Mizpah benediction. Look with me again at verse 49. May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful? Doesn't that sound precious? May the Lord watch between you and me when we are away from each other. What's the context? This was not meant as a blessing. This was, in effect, a curse. Jacob doesn't, or Laban doesn't trust Jacob. He's saying, your God needs to watch out over you. Not me. I'm clean. I got it all together. And yet we, we take that and we pronounce it and, 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 we, and we just appropriate this and we bless each other, not even knowing where it came from or why it's there in the first place. Verse 53. Laban finishes up. He finishes up this wordy proposal by invoking the names of the God of Abraham. Notice this, the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father. What he's doing there is he's attempting to identify Laban's God with the true God of Abraham. It's like people today say, oh, I believe in God. Yeah, but what God do you believe in? You know, I believe in God. Your God, my God, they're all the same, right? No, they're not. They're vastly different. The God you believe in is not the same God that I believe in. What's your God's name? Well, God. No, no, it's not. Your God's name is Satan. Oh. Oh. fighting words, aren't they? <laughs> my God's name is that's right, Jesus, Yeshua, Yahweh, Jehovah. Don't, don't equate your God with my God. But Jacob, Jacob doesn't even try to clear up Laban's theological confusion here. Proverbs says, if you correct a fool, you become like him. There's a time to correct a fool and a time not to correct a fool. This is the point at which Jacob says, I'm not even going to bother correcting. I'm not even going to try to clear up your, your confusion here about God. But Jacob does go on to make his own oath in the name of the God who has been. He names him the fear of his father Isaac. Wow. And then after Laban kisses his, grand, his grandchildren, his daughters goodbye, and gives them his fatherly blessing, he prepares to leave, but he could not even bring himself to apologize to Jacob or to give him any words of blessing. 
And then Laban left and went home. And no further mention is made in Scripture of Laban or his sons. This is the end. This is all we hear about him. What a sad commentary on this man's life. This is what it's come to. He has no heritage. He has no thing to point to in the New Testament or further on the Old Testament. Laban is an unfortunate example of a worldly, covetous person. One who indeed knows about the true God and to whom through a thorough witness has been given. Has, has Laban had a thorough witness of God in his life? Yeah, 20 years of Jacob's testimony. He's seen the reality of God in Jacob's life, along with the power of God in his blessing and protection of Jacob. And he himself had even blessed, been blessed through his relationship with Jacob, his own testimony. But nevertheless, he continues along in his own idolatry, he continues along in his own covetousness, seeking only material gain for himself to the exclusion of everything else. That's all he cares about. He just cares about himself and what he can get out of the deal in the short run. Rather than seeking to follow the truth of God's plan as witnessed to him by Jacob, he ends up merely resenting Jacob and coveting the blessings of God on Jacob. And in the long run, he ends up with nothing. What a commentary. He ends up with nothing. His name is not even mentioned from here on in Scripture. He goes on into oblivion. Presumably Laban and his sons are all in hell. And they had it right there. Twenty years. Right there in front of them. Twenty years experiencing the blessing of God through Jacob's presence. Twenty years watching Jacob get blessed. Twenty years watching Jacob's truthfulness and honesty right before him. His life constitutes a very sober warning to many people. Religious people. Religious people who fundamentally are self-worshipping and self-seeking and not really seeking after the Lord. Laban is a profound warning to us. All of his justifications, all of his lies, all of his deceptions, all of his turning away blame, never acknowledging his own culpability, always suspicious of of Jacob. And on the other hand, look at Jacob, faithfully serving, faithfully serving, faithfully serving, keeping his word, keeping his promise, being a man that he could be depended upon, being a man who would go beyond what was expected of him. What a contrast. Jacob didn't start out that way, did he? He started out as a, as a deceiver, as a liar. And yet God had worked in his life and worked in his life. And now Jacob is going to go home a very different man than when he first got to Laban. But his effect on Laban and Laban's response is zero. Is zero. What a tragedy. The God who protected and the God who prospered Jacob, the Bible says, became a man. He became a man. Why? Why did he become a man? He came down here to 
to demonstrate what God was like. But more than that, he came down to pay a price for us. To set us free from the power of sin. To set us free from hell. God so loved us that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would have everlasting life, would not perish. There may be some of you here this morning who, like Laban, you've had a heavy exposure to the truth. Maybe you've sat in church for a while. Maybe you've been married to a Christian spouse. But if truth be known, you've never really, really committed yourself like Jacob. You're still self-seeking. You're still self-absorbed. It's all about you. All you can see is other people's faults. All you can see is other people's failings. All you can do is blame other people. Very, very seldom, if ever, have you looked at yourself and said, you know, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And in so doing, come to that very humbling place where you commit yourself to Jesus. There's nothing you can do about changing. You recognize that God's going to change you, just like he changed Jacob. I want you to think about that for a moment. As God said to Jacob, now, today, now you leave. You leave this environment. Leave this old world. Leave this world of sin and come at once home. I would invite you to do the same thing. You may be sitting here today and you look into your life and there's some pretty radical unforgiveness in your life. Selfishness. Pride. If you look in your life and you're being honest, you say, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been about me. I'm a complainer. I'm a whiner. Truth be known, I'm not a thankful person. I don't thank God every day. I don't thank Him for the trials and difficulties. I don't really trust Him. There's been no real change in my life. I'm not any different when I first started professing to be a Christian. If that describes you, I want to pray with you. Just a short prayer. A prayer of acknowledgement, a prayer of commitment. A prayer that would mark maybe a new beginning in your life where now you would really see, I, I, I want to be a person like Jacob who grows and changes, experiences God's blessing and protection and provision, even in the midst of difficulties and trials. If that describes you and you want to pray with me, I'm not going to pray all by myself, but if there's somebody here that wants to pray, then I'm just going to ask you to do something right now. I'm just going to ask you to stand. God has spoken to your heart in any way this morning. I just want you to stand. Don't worry about what people are thinking. Don't worry about what anybody's looking at you. I'm not going to make any heads bow or eyes closed. We're going to do this publicly. You stand up and you say, you know what, God, you're right. You, you, you got me this morning, God. You spoke to my heart. We'll wait just a moment. If you're sitting there thinking, no, 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 I don't need to stand. I'm, 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 I'm all together. I got it all together. If you're sitting there justifying to yourself, you need to stand. This is about humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand. This is about saying, Lord, I need you every single moment of every single day. Now, I want you to lift your hands with me. Just lift your hands real high. Like we're reaching out to our Heavenly Father. 
Imagine yourself just reaching up to him. You pray this prayer after me. God, forgive me. Forgive me for my selfishness, for being so self-absorbed, for thinking it's all about me. Lord, you've opened my eyes and you've spoken to my heart. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I ask you to save me. Infuse me with your spirit. A new hope, a new excitement for you. Increase my appetite for your word, for fellowship with you, with your people. And Lord, help me not to blame others, but rather to pray, to bless them when I'm cursed, to encourage when I'm discouraged, and to reach out, Lord. Help me see others, Lord, in need of you, and that you will take care of me. Help me to trust you. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that Jesus died on that cross in my place. That he was buried and after three days he rose from the dead. God, I believe. And I commit myself to you, to your will and to your kingdom. And I ask you to give me strength now by your spirit that I can live my life in a manner worthy of you in every respect. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.